Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We had to ask them to stop sending them because they were sending so many through they were just cluttering up the What's this mix yeah. like? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh look at that. It it's a fine colour. Oh, melted. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a powerful brew. That's the first time I've actually wanted to Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very strong. Like, don't spill it in the equipment. For God's sake. It's a powerful brew. It really is. Anything else, it's standard fighting. So, can I tell my I can't really tell my Madonna's story because I'm so worried now about my learned friends, but. um. I can try it out here because it won't get a laugh anyway. But shall I tell you what it is? I'm driving in the car with Chrissy Hine. Yeah, you can probably just edit the beginning. I'm driving in a car with Chrissy Hine. Was this before or after the fire crisis? <laughs> before the fire crisis. I've done an interview with her. We're driving through London in this big old uh, Chelsea tractor that she's driving. And uh, yeah, said, we're talking about Madonna for some reason. I said, uh, the astonishing thing about Madonna to me is that, you know, she just moves right along professionally. You know, she has these relationships, I suppose you can say, with, with people who are songwriters and uh, producers. Many years and, ago. And the, the, many years ago. This can lead to a, a, a romance. And then she just moves on to find another producer. And uh, then again, some extraordinary something blossoms. And uh, you know, I, I go on wittering away for a while. And Chrissy Hyde turns to me and says, we've all done that, sweetheart. And I just thought it was so lovely. Just, you know, they kind of, I never felt so put down. It also been called Sweetheart. I've come on, just grow up. You know, hello. It's well, the music the, industry. Oh, uh, right. The casting couch is not a scandal. It's just a... No, it's of, just absolutely standard. Obviously. It's absolutely standard. Yeah. Well, if that survives the edit, you listen to the word podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David Hepworth. Uh, Mark Allen cackling on my right. And uh, uh, Matt Hall at the wheels of... Not the wheels of steel. It's not really, is it? It's a, it's a little mixer. And we're pleased to welcome, this week, Tom Whitwell. Zoo Radio. This is like the Steve Bright show now, isn't it? Say hello, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Hello, pleased to be here. And uh, we, we, we like to have uh, contributors in on these podcasts regularly, but particularly Tom in this case. Because he's written a piece in the current issue of Word, on sale now. Terrific. Uh, with Nick Cave on the cover. Which is actually, Tom, no word of a lie, one of my favourite pieces that's ever been in Word. And I'm not... I'm not blowing smoke up your thunder. Very kind. That's the American. Don't often get praised. So yeah. Well, 
And, and you know, for the benefit of those who either haven't read it or have not come across Tom before, I mean, Tom as well as writing and doing all sorts of things. Tom, you're on an absolutely fascinating little blog. Yes. Called, tell us about that, called Music Thing. It's called Music Thing. Um, I started doing it about two, no, about three years ago. And it's really, somebody once said to me, it's, it's, it's all about musical instruments and guitars and synthesizers and how people make music. Uh, and it really started, most people write about that stuff very, very seriously. So it's all about how you get the right tone or you do, you know, it's about how Eric Clapton recorded such and such with such and such vintage guitar and how you want it to be the tone. Was what it was all about. great. Uh, <laughs> but for me, I'd always, always kind of dabbled in music, but I just like these things, these gadgets. Toys. These toys. Yeah, absolutely. These, yeah. You know, I want this guitar because it looks great or because it has an interesting history attached to it. Um, I really liked the kind of, you know, synthesizers and things. They're covered in knobs and they look interesting. Uh, and I was never a very good musician. I mean, I make music now and not terribly well, but and I can't pretend that I need any of this stuff. Were you in a group that we would have heard of? No, not at all. But you've no. been in bands? No, I was yeah. in school bands. I oh, yeah, yeah. More successful than that. But it was, it's the, the purely about kind of fetishization of this stuff. And being very honest about it, you know, I'm not pretending that I need this. I'm not pretending I need a fifth synthesizer to sit in my bedroom and twiddle knobs on. Yeah. Uh, and so it kind of grew out of that, and that seemed to sort of touch a chord with people. And of course, yeah. nowadays you've got YouTube and you know all sorts of ways of kind of referencing what the stuff looked like in yeah. the past, what it looked like now. You know, there's a whole new dimension to. Oh, it's great. I mean, when, when YouTube appeared, it meant you could say, you know, here's. 20 people using a Prophet 5, and you've got clips of, you know, his... So for the benefit of those something. who don't know, what's Prophet 5? Prophet 5 was a big oh, kind of black synthesizer <laughs> from the 80s. You'd see, if you look at um, Stop Making Sense, you'll see about five of them there. It's kind of Bernie Worrell and all, the, all those kind of... And I'm sure Petrol Boys... See, I could never them. see past the big white suit that's yeah. uh, <laughs> being worn by the lead singer in that film. I yeah. suppose also that this stuff, nowadays, it kind of dates so fast, doesn't it? Well, the other yeah, thing. So the space age thing becomes you know, corny and yeah. cute really quickly, doesn't the it? Things become retro really within you know four or five years. You yeah. get people talking about something as retro. You also get. I mean, one of the reasons it's an interesting time to do it is because almost all this stuff has now disappeared into computer. And I've got a friend who does um, TV soundtracks, and he works in this beautiful room with a great big grand piano and just loads of interesting-looking, weird bits of old kit. He doesn't use any of it. You know, I mean, he, he, he uses it now and then, sample it or something. It's been, but a it's, software all, it's all in the yeah. software. And because he's a professional musician who this is actually his real life and his real job, it's much, much easier for him to have it all in the software. It sounds just as good and it's much, much easier. And if the BBC ring up and need an extra two and a half minutes, he can just pull it out. Whereas if he was making that with this weird box on the floor, he would have to go and mic it up and set it all up right. again. And it wouldn't sound significantly different. And I would never pretend it really sounds significantly different. It's just, for a dabbler like me, it's much more interesting. I'm much more fun, much more interested in that stuff. Mm. So, the, 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 coming to this piece that's in, in the current issue of Word, I suppose broadly it's, a bit, it's, it's, it's about why records all sound the same nowadays, isn't it? That's kind of the starting point of it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which is related to what you've just been saying about the... Well, it, the, the difference between doing it in the room and doing it on the software. Absolutely. I mean, the way everything's been sucked into the machine does, has made a difference in that. And it does mean... I mean, the, the way the technology of making records has changed so just phenomenally since... Only the last few years. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and in the last... 24th century, isn't it? Really? Absolutely. The last, the last sort of five, ten years, the way 
everyone makes music has changed completely. So the very, very top end, you know, most, you know, the, the biggest producers will now do everything in a computer. And they might do things like, they might record the tracks on two-inch tape on some vintage tape machine. But it's very, very rare they don't then feed that into Pro Tools and do the editing in the computer on Pro Tools. And then they might even put it back onto two-inch tape to or onto half-inch tape to master it. But it's almost nobody now does it in the old-fashioned way. And yeah, it was yeah. only, certainly less than ten years ago, that the vast majority of people were still doing it on tape in big studios because they felt that was the only way to get the real sound. So you've got in this piece, you start off by talking about this fantastic clip, which again you can see on YouTube, and I'll put it on the site. And it's extraordinary. I was looking at it today. <laughs> this is what, what are they called? This it's group? Maroon Five. Maroon Five yeah. attempting to do their big hit. Have you seen this? Yeah. No. It's astonishing. You know, you, you always thought your dream as a fourteen-year-old was being a rock band. You'll have fun for the rest of your life. You know, there are this bunch of guys. You know, in their mid-thirties or whatever struggling with trying to make this record, yeah? And it looks like hell on earth, doesn't it? It's incredible. They're it's... hating the job. Every <laughs> stage of it, they're loathing it. Because they've got these riffs and they've got these bits and they're trying to kind of lock it together into a hit, aren't yeah. they? And basically, they're forced to confront the fact that actually at the centre of this massive technological enterprise, there is no song. There is... They even say it themselves, yeah. don't they? You know... There isn't really a chorus, they say. Now, in the old, in the old days, which is an expression that I use quite a lot. <laughs> what you, what you put your figure up? For? I was reading, I was li listening recently to a Radio Two uh, program about Holland Dozier Holland, who absolutely loved it. Only in 1968, when the tape machine in the House of Hits went from a two-track machine to a four-track machine, because it meant. They could put the drums and the bass on separate tracks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And there's a step change in Motown records at that point. You can actually hear them get incrementally bigger and punchier. And yet now, oh, it's there's people with 157 tracks who don't know what to do with at least. But you see, go back to Holland Dozier Holland. If they've been making that record, Holland Dozier Holland been making that record that we're talking about. Halfway through, they said, chuck it out. There is no song here. Well, there is no, nothing here. They wouldn't have even got into the studio. Because no, until it was fully formed, you know, it was. But it sat there at the piano, day, written it was, in it some was, way. It was in and out in the day, make the record and get out. Yeah, you know? yeah. Whereas these guys are they're trying to bring this thing back to life. Aren't they? You imagine? I don't know how long it took them, but watching this tiny little—it's like six minutes long—and you never want to hear any of that music ever again, <laughs> ever, ever in your life, in the edited version of it. And you get the impression they were in there for months and months and months playing this same ghastly riff oh, it's over awful. and over again. It's absolutely awful. But eventually, here's the good news or the bad news, they eventually made it. Yeah, They struggled, yeah. a difficult birth with this thing. They struggled to bring this into the world. And it was a hit, wasn't it? It was an enormous hit. <laughs> it, was, it was number depressing. one all yeah. over the world. Yeah. It was... I think their album was probably one of the top, you know, certainly top five albums of last year. This single would have been one of their top singles of last year. It was, by the current standards of the music industry, an enormous success. And but, they, they won. There are so many issues here, aren't there? Can, yeah, I, can I mention the story, which we may have mentioned on podcast past, I can't remember actually, about Joe Boyd's book, which mm. is partly, this came up in yeah. a conversation with John Leckie, who you, yes. the producer who you interviewed for this piece. And uh, I was asking him about his views of this. And basically, Joe Boyd makes this 
point in his book, um, White Bicycles. White Bicycles, yeah. And he makes the point, he's sitting in, a, I think, an all bar one or something, and he's watching people come into the, into the, uh, have I done this before, mate? No, I'm oh, it doesn't matter, no. no it's still ladies good. and gentlemen, that's the sound of David Hepworth winding his watch. Oh, sorry! Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's very depressing it's when, when, if you're Mark Ellen, you start talking, and immediately people start filing their nails, sending text messages. Tom Whitwell is here a minute ago, he's actually gone to the shops, he forgot he had to buy some groceries. So I'll just carry on on my sorry. own. Sorry! <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> but, uh, no, Joe Boyd makes his point, I thought it was so well expressed. He's sitting in all bar one, and in all bar ones, they tend to play those kind of approved songs by uh, people like Van Morrison, I suppose, Marvin Gaye and stuff. But, um, you know, I cold play. But broadly, it is, it is computer-generated sound. And when people come in and Coldplay is on, even if they don't know what Coldplay is, in the unlikely event, they don't immediately suspect that this is live music. But when they put on the Buena Vista Social Club, recorded by, um, you know, Ry Cooder around Jerry, single Jerry Boys who engineered. No, not yeah, single Jerry Boys. I talked to Jerry Boys about right. this only recently. Oh, right, actually. go on. Well, he produced this to my Jabati album. Oh, yeah. Very, and, so and he's regarded as the now. He's suddenly got interested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, go no, he's regarded the master of this. Uh, and, you know, because Joe Boyd has said this to me, that Jerry Boys is the only person who knows how to capture a room, you know. Yeah, right. And uh, and uh, I talked to him about it while writing this piece because actually you mentioned also this this Johnny Cash Rick Rubin yeah. recording, yeah. which is kind of super. It's so supernatural. It's almost stylized, well, isn't it? I think that I think it was really interesting. This this story. Of the point. I'm going to make the point at the end. The, the, the end. Obviously, the point is when they put on the Buena Vista Social Club record, people walk in. They don't know what the record is, but he says they're all looking around, expecting to see musicians. And I thought that was a really interesting point, because on a subconscious level, they, they, they felt something from the production of this sound that indicated that it was live music. It wasn't, it wasn't just the sound of, of people stripping in different layers of, of, of sound. Because yeah. no, yeah. I was very, very sceptical about this story mm. when I heard it. And I actually put a thing on Music Thing saying... I don't know about this story. What do you think? Do you think there's any truth in it? Because one of the great things of doing a blog is you get the readers an awful lot more knowledgeable than me. Yep. You know, most of them are actual real musicians. Many of them have been inside recording studios. Some of them even work in them. Uh, so, and they were slightly sceptical about the idea that you walk in and suddenly, magically, they can look out for a, a band. Uh, and I was asking the much more general question of how, when you do walk into a room and there is a band playing, you always know. And it's a very strange kind of psychoacoustic effect, I think, that you, you really do not... Yeah. It's very unusual to walk into a, band, a room and think there's a band playing and there actually not be a band playing. Uh, and so, they, But I think the, the big thing there is this idea of recording a room with people in it rather than recording the instruments and the sounds and those minute things. And uh, talking to Jerry Boys, what, what he explained to me, I think I'm getting this right, is he does, he does both. Yeah. He says, I record the instrument, but I also record the room. Yes. So I have right. mics absolutely have everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, loads of mics. Yeah. You know? yeah. So he'll work it out. You know, the incredible amount of preparation goes into just getting the thing to sound naturally as if it's in a room. Wasn't it Daniel Lanois who, kind of, who first did that with like, the Neville brothers and then I think you 2 in the kind of early 90s? And Possibly. They had, they had I a think... house in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. yeah, they yeah, did. yeah, yeah. 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 I think it's almost a, it's something that was we used to be what was done. So yeah. Abbey Road is a great room, and to record in a room like that is really difficult. And uh, talking to Pete about you know it was literally engineers with white white coats on going around, and the business of making a band sound good in a room is really tricky. It's a really it's something you learn. You do an apprenticeship, you learn to do it. The business of then 
that as as Studio Cinema developed and as you went from two to four to eight to 24 tracks, it meant you could do it another way, which was to make a really silent room with no echo or no anything. You could put microphones very close to things and you could then add echo on afterwards. And that made you be much more creative, much, much, much easier. You know, I can sort of begin to do that kind of thing. You put yeah. me in a room with some musicians and a microphone, load of microphones, I wouldn't have a clue well, where to start. Listen, and I think the listener can detect a difference. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's interesting, there's, there's very much two sides of it, because the, I think all those old, you know, the 60s records are recordings of rooms, and they sound fantastic, and you can definitely hear it differently. But we sh- you shouldn't forget that the, what we gained from all that studio stuff was all those... That explosion of kind of creative music, you know, was how your Pink Floyds were made and how your Queen albums were made and how all that kind of recording technology stuff only became possible when you weren't recording the room, you were recording the, the instruments and yeah, you had all absolutely. the different bits and you could put them together differently. So I think they're two, it's not like one is the right thing and one is the wrong thing. It's interesting, isn't it? Because right across the board, though, everything digital uh, makes it kind of easier for everybody to have a go, doesn't it? It's like you say, you yeah. could kind of make a record. Yeah. You know, they, uh, you know, digital, they, with magazine page makeup before digital yeah. design, you needed people who could kind of draw. They I had think, to be able to do it. Yeah. You don't anymore. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't need to have people who are original and, and very good at it and so forth. But it, it, does, it does make it easy to copy. I think it's actually the dig- what it's about. I think to some extent with this, the digital bit is a bit of a of a kind of red herring because a lot of this stuff is it's very easy to say, oh, it's digital recording. You know, that's the problem here, it's digital recording. Went back to analogue will be fine. But what I'm talking about when the, all the life was sucked out of recording was the seventies and the eighties when everyone was using completely analogue everything all the way along. You know, all the Trevor Horn records were made completely analog. The old way, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have a, tape. a few tiny bits of digital yeah. sampling and stuff. And essentially, they were analog records made in the same way as Eagles records. You know, in the early seventies. Yeah. So it's it's the, the, the amazing thing. The analog, the, the digital, is that as you say it. What's amazing is how cheap it is. When I remember when I was in school bands at school in the in the eighties, you would if you wanted to record something, you could get a four track and you could borrow it. It cost about three hundred quid. And you might borrow one for a day from somebody. Yeah. And you'd have that for a day, and that would be your experience of it. Now, literally, you can go and get completely for free a 24 track digital recording studio that you plug into your computer. And it's, you know, you plug some microphones into your computer, you buy a little interface that will cost you 100 quid. And you can do things that Trevor Horn wouldn't be able to do then. Yeah. But presumably, this, I mean, this is the most basic way of looking at it, but presumably, in the 70s and 80s records you're talking about, the Trevor Horn records, although they had incredible amounts of. Uh, technical expertise and incredible amounts of ornamentation. I must admit, I love his records. Yeah. They probably lacked some of them, a little bit of that spirit. And of course. Because, yeah. I mean, I had a, um, on a really pathetic level, I had my first ever experience of this yesterday. Yeah. I have a group uh, who are, incidentally, uh, listeners. Available. I'm going there, yeah, available. But they're, they're opening the Cornbury Rock Festival this year, so we're already Not again. From Get there early. But we went into a studio <laughs> yesterday, right? Nick Lowe's studio in London, and we recorded a, a single. And the way it was done was the seven musicians played completely live. And I've got to tell you, it was an unbelievable experience because there are three horns in the horn section and four others, and we did it in five goes. We only had 35 minutes to record it in. It's a three-and-a-half-minute scar song by the Scatterlights. And we had to concentrate and play this thing. And in fi- it took five takes for all of us to play for three minutes, 20 seconds, without making a single mistake. And I thought it was an amazing discipline. Because if you, it doesn't matter what the trumpet players played or the alto sax player or the tenor sax player. If you, in my case the bass player, play some absolute clunker... <laughs> 
a second before it ends. It's highly likely that can't be edited out. You've got to do it all again. But I what, thought what an amazing discipline that was. Oh God! Because well, it's it produced anything. Performance of any kind. Panic sound of people. Well, not panic. It's, hopefully, just you know. It's like you can remember the days of writing a feature. Oh yeah, yeah. Where we used to roll a piece of white paper into a typewriter. I know we're really going back into the Middle <laughs> Ages here, but it's not actually. Write a log on the fire here. And you, you had to sit there, and if you you had to compose your first sentence in your head before you struck the, the key that would put the mark on the virgin white paper. Was that before or after they abolished the corn laws? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was where, you know, magazine... The ducking was, stool was still there. was the happy clank of typewriters and sweary <laughs> banter and, you know, and uh, eight pints but of lager at lunchtime. But seriously, Slavery the difference is now, rolling, by the way. Yeah. with a word processor... And I think it's, you know, it has analogies between this and music. Oh, the word, you kind of put the bits out there and then you shuffle them about. Absolutely. Rather than making the key creative decision before you start, you sort of... What are, what, are the bits, what are the bits that we need to make a record? Okay, we need a drum track here, we need a bass track here, we need a rough idea of a guitar there, and then let's see if we can do a Maroon 5 and, you know... Six months later, see if we can come out with some kind of hit. Absolutely. It wasn't always thus. One of the things John Leckie was talking about was the... He just said musicians are basically lazy. Yes. They will not... They will do anything other than playing the thing again because they've got it wrong or practising Because the they're thing. terrified they're going to get it even worse yeah, wrong. And, that, and that's the crucial thing. And that now... I mean, it's incredible where you record now with the... You know, if you're recording it you know, at home, you literally record a loop. You know, lots of music software, but it works like this. If you're the bass, if you're playing bass on a record yourself and you're just recording it, you just play a loop once. Why would you play it twice? I mean, they're roughly the same. You know, like what would the point be? And it's a completely different yeah. discipline. And then, you, and one of the things I've, I found was that it felt like all music was turning into dance music. It was the way yes. dance music was made. Yeah. And the way dance music was made was that building up loops after loops, and particularly kind of house music and techno was loops after loops after loops. And I suspect that records like you know, Coldplay records or something like that, those kinds of records are probably made more and more in that kind of way where they will, they might play it all the way through but then they'll pick one, yeah. one loop that's right. Just, it's so easy to just then put that across the whole track so it's got perfect guitar I part. do think this is absolutely extraordinary. You know, because, yeah, because what you're then listening to is the same backing vocal repeated. Yeah. And, uh, and so there isn't any change of texture. I mean, you know, I can remember discovering that I, Me, Mine by the Beatles, which I think was the last song they ever recorded in January 1970, was uh, repeated at the end. Yeah. It's just a scrap of a song. It was only a, a verse, I think, and a, and a chorus and a little bridge section. And so they had to then, t to extend it into a song, take the first bit and repeat it at the end, drop it in, because there was no more there. But there was yeah. three Beatles present. You know. I remember being <laughs> amazed by that and going back and thinking, how extraordinary. And now, of course, clearly, that practice is absolutely standard. It, it's yeah. it's, it's amazing. Time. I came across this this, this week. I was... Uh, yeah, don't know if you saw that Tio Massaro, who was Miles Davis's producer, died this week in his eighties. Mm. And he's, this is the man who used to produce. You know, it, you don't think of a jazz record as needing production, really. You know, from kind of kind of blue through Bitches Brew, everything. And he was very old school, Tio Massaro. And uh, and I was watching a clip again on YouTube of him explaining how he did it. He said Miles used to come in the studio with John McLaughlin and Herbie Hancock, God knows who they were, and they'd just kind of parp away for days, you know, for as long as there was as there was money for studio time, they <laughs> were just <laughs> roughly... I think Miles would be awfully upset no, to hear his oeuvre reduced to the simple parpage. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a very self-indulgent Miles yeah. era, wasn't okay. it? No, yeah. But, but T.M. Massaro's argument was there was no other Miles Davis other than the very self-indulgent Miles Davis. Right, okay. He would play for days, Right. Tim Massaro's job was to take the tapes and go, do you know, there's a little bit there that he played it 
10 o'clock on Thursday morning that I think I can do something with. And, you know, and this is in the 60s, you know, when, when you don't think of this kind of thing being done. Well, you so mean loads of, of those records, like loads of I, those, sorry? Kind of Blue couldn't have been made like that. I don't know sure. about Kind of Blue, but later Jack Johnson, well, Beaches, Blue, things like that. that. Riffy yeah. stuff like that, which is increasingly reliant yeah. on the kind of hypnotic rhythm track and so forth. He would take a bit... And then he would repeat it, and then he'd take a bit from the end, and he'd put it at the front, and you know, all, and he he would basically Miles would go on tour, and then he'd kind of make this record. Miles would hear the record years later, months later, and think, "Is that me? Not a clue." Now, Tiamat <laughs> used to get really, really cross recently. It's absolutely fascinating when CBS Records, who never gave a hoot and could never understand Miles Davis in the first place, suddenly you know, going through their back catalogue, thinking we've got to keep putting stuff out yeah, to yeah, the yeah. CD market. They put out this fantastic box set and this metal box of, you know, the complete on-the-corner sessions. They released every last pop, yes? <laughs> Basically, but I tell you, Messer, I say, what are you doing pop. that for? That's the stuff I took out. <laughs> the pop you know by Limited <laughs> Orchestra. The best, the best bit was about that. Because Miles could go on tour, and it being a jazz audience, they wouldn't expect to hear the records no. on the record. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he could play something roughly the same. So I, so I was, in, I was intrigued he was doing the same thing well, back what, then, you know. That, what Neil uh, Tennant told me about recording Dusty Springfield, uh, which is that, you know, she, I can't remember the name of the hit, that was wonderful. Remember the record they made together? Oh, the, um, uh, the thing from Scandal. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, brilliant song. Everything is unwritten. I just can't remember. Well, can't listeners, you know what, what I'm talking do, about. What have I done to Just a bunch of fabled old men. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what it was. And uh, she just recorded phrase by phrase. She yeah. would just go in and just do, all right, I've done that bit, I'll do the next bit. And you'd think, my God, why can't you just please at least do two lines she, four lines? She did that with everything, didn't she, with Dusty in Memphis. She refused, she did, famously yeah. didn't sing anything on Dusty in Memphis in Memphis. It was all back in the Atlantic oh, no, studio. Shattered. Oh, really? And the other, the other thing, there was no Father Christmas. Then. With such a great you couldn't band. cope with the tension that the we're guys looking it, at you. We're doing it live. So yeah. she used to go back and. and yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing, famously, about Dusty Springfield is that she never took any interest in the lyrics at all. She's regarded as one of the great interpretive singers of our time, you know. And Neil and anybody will tell you. She didn't know what, she didn't care what it meant at all. She just found a way to phrase it, you know. As long as the, the words kind of, you know, she liked singing them. She didn't think about what it meant at all. Didn't think about how sad it was or anything. See, but, as a producer, I'd be saying, what a pro, probably. <laughs> as a listener, I'm saying, oh, this is tragic. But, I, but I'm, I'm intrigued about this whole thing, you know, because we have this traditional way of, of responding to music and particularly writing about it and so forth, where people think that engage the sincerity. You know, we've got this thing about authenticity. Yeah. You know? This is real music, this is not real music. You know, person is really feeling it and, or, or not. And um, the thing that struck me reading your piece, Tom, is, is, that, is that the click track yes. is so ubiquitous Absolutely. nowadays that, you know, that I, I think if, you, if people knew about it, it probably changed their view of music, wouldn't it? I How was, does this work? Well... This is something that I've kind of experienced in my own very tiny way because I've only ever really recorded music in this way. And when you record music into a into a sequencer of any kind, whether it's a, a you know Pro Tools or whatever it is, um, the first thing you do is you press record, and you, well, the first thing you do is you decide how fast the song is. Yes. So you say, oh, I'm going to have it at 110 BPM or whatever. Yeah. The click track starts, and then you play along with it a bit. And then the way I'll do it, you've got you know that bar sounds all right, so. I'll loop that a bit then you've got a bass line and then you'll move on from there um, 
And the idea of having a tape record, which I've never you know, experienced at all, where you just press it and then it's just silent and then you have to start somehow playing. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which to me, as somebody who doesn't play in bands and doesn't you know, have that experience of being any kind of real musician, is kind of alien to me, but obviously is how real music works. And I think now, I imagine the drummer is, because it makes life so much easier if you're synced to the click track. If your record is synced to the click track, it means the producer can then go along and just snip out the verses yeah, and snip yes, out the verses. So if you don't have that, it becomes it. incredibly... But, but also, they do it live, though, don't they? Well, apparently so. I mean, you know, they, you see the drummer with the earpiece yeah. in, yeah. it's because he's getting the click track. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're, 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 they're something, some guy off stage is deciding, yeah. well, number 12 will be played at this pace. But I and mean, everybody, there are presumably they're all here. Tedious it. technical reasons for that. that, that are, if you're playing a song with a live drummer, obviously, and you're keying into something that is, a, is effectively pre recorded on, yeah. on, on Synclavier or a computer or something, then clearly you can't start the song in the wrong beat because it would be out of sync with the <laughs> non human being that's yeah. producing this thing. And, and really, also, the light show as well. I was just going to mention <laughs> the light show. Not that the light show is automatic, but the light show clearly works at a certain pace, and uh, which does make you. I, I, I'm personally incredibly impressed when I hear that people like Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and even the Rolling Stones are able to change their uh, running orders as they progress throughout shows. I think they only change it sections. Yeah, I probably. I think they change it. They have prefabricated sections. These three yeah. numbers can be taken out, and those three numbers will yeah. be put in. There's the wonderful story. I'm sure you can correct me. I remember hearing about George Benson. The way George Benson would play is he would start playing the song, and the rest of the band had to work out and get it. So he would literally go up, stop by the first three notes or whatever. And the rest of the band like, had to know what the song Dylan was technique. and drop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bob Dylan sometimes they work their way all the way through. But it's still, still a, none the wiser. What it was, no, Ronnie Wood. Anyway. So that's the click. Tra- <laughs> What's the, that's the click track. I don't know if you did this, Tom, but auto tune. Auto tune is um, this. Inter- it's basically it's a piece of software. I mean, it's in boxes or it's in computers. Uh, essentially, what it does, the most crudest thing it can do is it will have a vocal track. It can work out what pitch the note is at, and it can, you can set it with a key. So this is supposed to be in E major. Uh, and it will subtly move the note to the nearest note, so it's in tune. That's the crudest way you can do it. Or equally, obviously, you can just put in another melody, and it will suck the it, tune to that. Are you alleging, Tom, that an, an, <laughs> that an inexperienced, indeed incapable <laughs> singer, could in some way, when fed through this machine, sound... Uh, Professional and well, entirely my... acceptable. Or, I mean, this is this the appalling? Mullard. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, my favourite. This has been around really a long time. I mean, as oh, long no, as no, anyone's no. been recording no, no. in computers, the thing I found really intriguing was somebody saying that when you go to the kind of talent shows and when you you have the people auditioning for kind of pop idol and things, you can hear them singing like auto tune. They sing, they can sing perfectly, but the way they you know their intonation changes because they're used to very crude auto tune where just the note is sucked up to the nearest note yeah, and yeah. sucked down, uh, and they start singing like that. So the young it's, kids are it, so used to hearing that. It's but it's again it's like that with design software or anything you use on the computer. Yeah. It will always do it at the facility of snap to guides. Exactly. Snap to guides. That's exactly when you get what near yeah. near a straight line, it'll make it a straight line. And so you know after a while that's what you aim for, don't you? Yeah. You, you you tread the path. That somebody has trodden before, but I think it's also again it's the laziness and the not well not laziness it's the easy life you know it's it's rather than retaking the entire three minutes and you imagine you're working with some great diva yes. you know what is what is I'm sure Mariah Carey can do it perfectly without autotune but somebody like her 
comes in, you know, what is three minutes of her time worth? Yeah. You know, when in fact the studio engineer can just go, just fix it. And the other thing you can do, so you can do it with the pitch, you can do it on the instruments as well. So if a, if a guitar solo has a note that he's just fluffed, you can tweak it back down. Um, and you can also do the same thing with timing. So you can do the edit, you can edit the timing verbally. So if something's a bit off, you can just shunt it back a bit. And it's the the, the complete. Do you think the listener has any is any capability when it comes to, to working out that this is a total dog's dinner with an out of tune singer and an inept drummer? <laughs> well, I don't think that. I don't. Th- can you? Can, is, uh, would you? Uh, it'd be any the wiser. No, I th- but I think I think you can tell what you're saying in that you can make records that become very sterile you know you can make records that, but it's not necessary and also you can make you can make a virtue of this i mean i was i was away last week was driving up from cornwall with the with my two small children in the car had an ipod mix of things i thought they might like and it was very very interesting to be listening to music not on because earbuds are quite good you know you listen you normally listen to music in quite a good way you know you listen to it on reasonable speakers you're listening to it on reasonable headphones this is listening to it over the car stereo in a Vauxhall Astra driving up the m5 uh, and that's when you really appreciate production because you put on uh, an old Motown record, it jumps out of the speakers. You can hear it straight away, and your you children respond, on, and they, they respond to it, and they, you know, it just purely in the sound, it leaps out of the speakers. Whereas Maroon Five, well, Maroon Five, I didn't try because I don't have. But Give the one that, of things well, that failed. The one that, I'll tell you, one that was really interesting. That I was going to mention as the kind of counter argument to all this. Love Machine by Gills Aloud came out and leapt out of the Classic speakers. Work considerably, you know, as just as well as any um, Motown record right. did, or the early Stones record. The other ones, interesting think that Satisfaction sounded incredible. What sounded really, what was interesting, I remember, I think Girls Aloud came on, the next track on was a police song, it was um, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. You could barely hear any of it. You could oh, hear really? little hissing of hi-hats, oh, really? and the kind of squawking of Sting. You couldn't hear anything, because it was recorded... In a beautiful studio, on beautiful tape in Montserrat or wherever beautiful it is. Island. Beautifully, beautifully done. That's great. Yeah. And great if you were monsters. listening to it on the enormous <laughs> room-sized loudspeakers, it would sound great. And they all sat there and said, this sounds great on these speakers, our job here is done. Whoever was mixing and producing the Girls Aloud records said, well, it might sound good on these speakers, but how's it going to sound on the, on the cast there on a Vauxhall Astra? And they can that. make it sound absolutely brilliant through that, which for me is at least as no, great sure. a skill as making it sound... Sure. Wizzy through, sure. you know, Montserrat There are studio. some groups, though, that are fundamentally disappointingly produced, aren't they? You listen to a Slade record or a Thin yes. Lizzy record. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're worn very badly. And yeah. rotten, those records are. Yes, that's yeah. true. Sorry, mate, you're going to say no, something. Just, uh, yeah. if, if you ever, uh, uh, in another life, I used to um, occasionally produce bands for sessions for the BBC. And if you ever went to Made of Studios, they had these great, fantastic studios and they recorded on kind of two-inch yeah. multi-track. But they, all the studios had a crappy little tray on, on, on top of the desk. Absolutely. Yeah. And, the, and you'd listen to it back on these yeah. great speakers, and then you'd listen to it on this thing. If it didn't sound right, you'd mix no, it again. No, absolutely right. Because that's what most people that's listen how to. People heard it. Stuff that's that wonderful scene in the uh, the Tony Wilson, uh, what's the film called? The Steve, where Steve Cooper. 24 Steve Cooper, yeah, yeah. Where, where they go and play, um, they make their first record, whatever it is, Control or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get, they go and drive around Manchester at night yeah. listening to it. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful moment in a film. It's fantastic. And about, but there's even more terrifying instruments on their way, uh, yes. devices. I read about the Waves Ultra Maximizer. Well, this is the other... Which sounds <laughs> like the final solution. Absolutely. The Ultra, the ultra yes, Maximizer right. was the... Yeah. Um, this is the whole kind of loudness war thing, which is very interesting, which is the business of 
on vinyl, you were physically limited by how loud a record could be. So there was this great story of, uh, I think it was Led Zeppelin 2 or 4, one of them, which was mastered, they're obviously trying to master it as loud as possible, so they're going to make it as loud as possible. Um, there, the, the pressing was done, and I think it was somebody's daughter put the record on. It's Armadette against daughter put the record on, and it jumped on her record player. So he said, right, bin it, you know, we're going to have to remaster it a bit quieter. We've gone, they pushed it too far. So with vinyl, you had this very strict physical thing. And with CD, you have the same thing. You have, within the CD format, you have <coughs> a digital limit to how loud the thing can be um, without it distorting slightly. Uh, but you can push it and you can push it and push it. And the software has evolved that enables you to push it harder. And really, the worst example of this was the, there was a... Um, Iggy Pop remastered Raw Power and I don't have the CD he produced but listening to the samples on iTunes or on Amazon you can hear how terrible it sounds he's literally pushed it so far that the whole thing is completely distorted <coughs> over amplified uh, over amplified and, over, and it's, it's this business of compression so the loudest bit and the quietest bit are basically the same um, and so Ultra Maximizer is Waves created this thing which you can get in a little box or you can get it in your computer and they're now on to version three of it. And whenever this is kind of reviewed in the music geek press, there's this kind of awe and slight kind of dread. Fear, have we gone too far? Split in the atom. They always it? say, you know, in the right hands, this is a very powerful thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can you you be assured it won't end up with <laughs> It'll end up with far more wrong hands than it'll end up in right, won't it? Yeah. And yeah. the stuff of this is it's also all available, it's all pirated. So this piece of software will cost you literally a thousand pounds or something if you go and buy the real thing. But if you're a little house producer or whatever, or some you know Eastern European chap, they've very generously Eastern Europeans have hacked all this stuff and you can download it. So anyone making music can now access this. From stuff. which particular site? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so it does become absolutely ubiquitous, and you hear these records that have just been crushed to death, and they are you know it is something that's. There's definitely a problem. You do. <laughs> excuse me. You do. You do wonder if there are going to be a, a you know rebellion against this though at some point. And the number of people you talk to who would tell you the same thing that records nowadays a lot of them make people feel ill. <laughs> that they kind of they're, yeah. they're crank. You know, it's like food. You know, they put too much additive, too many additives in them. You know. Um, when we were talking earlier, I was thinking that is it is it that you can only be authentic if you can spend a shed load of money on micing up a room properly. Well, no, because really don't you think there are, there are, there are traditionally, it's, it's cyclical, isn't it? But traditionally, there are records that go back to basics. There was one called, uh, was it the Campfire Tapes by Michelle yeah, Shock? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember, it was that was made on the C90 yeah. Yeah. Uh, by her uh, record company boss. No, um, it was a guy I met her. Pete Lawrence met Pete her Lawrence. at a festival in Kansas or somewhere. Oh, right. Just recorded there in the car park. Yeah. Right, that's right. I mean, and then there was, I mean, I suppose Billy Bragg's appearance on top of the pops in Between the Wars and whatever it was, 1986 or something. I mean, not that they admittedly make the record like that, but you know, there's, I mean, to some extent, the Nora Jones uh, record that was such a huge hit about two or three years ago, which was produced with Eric Mardin, my mother. Uh, no, it was no, somebody. Yes, it was. It was Eric He was yeah. the classic, record it on two inch tape, put it into Pro Tools, put it yes. back on. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, that's yeah. a problem. Isn't that's it? right. Yeah. But I mean, the, at least they they gone back to sort of, they kind of simplified it. And those things are little sort of milestones along the road where people suddenly, you know, regain their senses and think, my God, are we, are we going miles off the script here? 
And uh, so I imagine that will carry on. And whether or not it will be a huge revolution against it, I absolutely have no idea. I mean, I suppose to some extent the, what's going on in folk music at the moment is a, is a revolution against what's happening on MTV. But, I mean, that's always been there, isn't it? The two things work in parallel. A magazine, a website, a podcast, The Word. Question I want to ask you, I don't know if anybody can answer this, you know, which relates to last week, you know, when we were, we were ranting about the Brit Awards on both, you know, the podcast on, on, the, on the website, wordmagazine.co.uk. Yes, still available. I've still enjoyed still available. very much, all the contributions. Mark Ronson, best British male, okay? I'm going to offer one nitpicking objection. He's not British. Well, he is, actually. I'm no, he's naturalised American. Last week. No, no, he's last from... Week. No, I met him. He's from Shepherd's Bush. No, last no he's week. not from Shepherd's Bush. He, he, his mother comes from Southport or something, socialite, whatever, remarried, moved... To, he was born... He was brought up in New York. But here's the point. He's naturalised American. Last week. He got his, he got his passport, literally, two weeks before Just in time break. to yeah. pick up his beer out. So I, I'm I, saying that... I contest this, Dave. I think no, he's Shepherd's Bush. Got, and he no, moves, he I think he moves to America when he's four or five. Yeah, but the point is this. He's now a naturalised American, which I would have thought would disqualify you from being... You know, if I'm naturalised British, I don't think I'm going to get the best American actor, am I? But don't, I'm we, not American don't we always anymore. do the same at the Oscars? I was in a meeting this morning, and somebody was talking about the Oscars... And they were counting down the number of Os- British Oscars. Yeah. Somebody was suggesting the Cohen brothers counted as British. Oh, really? Oh, I love all that. I mean, because they're good. I love all that with Russell Crowe every year. If Russell Crowe wins something, he's Australian, isn't he? But if he, he, you know, no, sorry, it's the other way around. It's, it's yeah. actually he's, Zoomed, he's, isn't he? If you win something, well, you're well, the they're top American, And it's the tennis, yeah. it's the same. Yeah, all these people pretending to be British for tennis' sake. So I'm going to throw in the other question. All right, we'll, we'll leave that hanging. How British do you have been to play rugby for England? <laughs> well, not very at the moment. But the same thing applies to absolutely everybody. Um, the, the, here's the big question. Mark Ronson, what does he do? Can somebody tell me what he does? Doesn't he make the records? Yeah, he's a producer, don't he? He makes the records. He's a producer. As he's a producer. Ranger. He's yeah. a producer. I'm still not so when sure. When you were talking about um, Miles Davis, I was thinking, yeah, but maybe at that stage, somebody like Gil Evans actually had quite a lot to do with Absolutely. how the record sounded. And maybe Only not, for not, a couple I'm of not, records. I'm not suggesting for one minute. Well, yeah, but there were, there were three or four of the best Yeah, I know. Those were early. In the jazz canon. Okay. No, sure. But I'm maybe Mark Ronson does something similar with tempo and instruments and whatever in terms of being a producer. I thought it was very funny, though. I accept your argument that that's what he does. But in order to get his moment of the glory at the Brits, he has to appear on stage with a, let's note, a twin-necked guitar. You know, looking like a member <laughs> was a of Wishbone move. Ash. You know what I mean? <laughs> that was a bad Playing move. like crazy, you know what I mean? Mark, being a, he well, did, he actually, did he actually avail himself of both necks? I, you know, I was so far away. in uh, I was hanging off the, the back of the scaffolding, you know, <laughs> And my view, obscured by Universal Records, EMI and Orange Mobiles, enormous <laughs> tables. But I don't know if he did, actually. But just, just in his defence, uh, there was a, a piece, um, an interview with Amy Winehouse in, in Word magazine about a year ago, where she talks about the, she talks about the extraordinary controlling influence that he had on, on the music and co-composition, and, wasn't it? I mean, you know, and the, well, the sound yeah. of the record, and he raised it all. I mean, I know what you mean, because I think your problem, David, is we can really whittle this down, is the man wears a little skinny tie, doesn't he? No, and that is annoying. <laughs> I, know, I know it is. He looks like a member of the Jags. Be honest. Is that what it is? Talking he looks like Jags. a sort of head boy at school. You know what I mean? He's done rather well for himself. I wasn't sure about that haircut. Yeah, the haircut, yes. Yeah, be a boyish, though. The Word. Uh, Chaps, there's a thread on the website at the moment, at the moment which is very good, uh, called Bands We Thought Would Be Big. Oh, right. Words, oh, yeah. I've which proved this, yeah. to be a rich, a rich scene. 
Um, Mark, you go on. Bands you thought Ooh, were going to be big. That, um, that were, I'll confess. You go first. I went on I telly and I announced second. Lone Justice were going to be huge. You wanted to manage them, I remember. Oh, yeah, I thought it was a good idea. Marry Death even at that age. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, clearly this weren't going to happen. That's when I realised I was never going to be an R man. I put a group called Jimmy the Hoover on the cover of Smash Hits. Thank you. And a guy called Matt Fretton. Tom, have you ever done that? Have you ever, you know, have you ever thought this lot are going to happen? I can't think, I can't think of print. any names now. No, but I put a yes, called Strawberry Switchblade on the cover of Smash Hits. Well, they had a hit, didn't did they? they? I, I think they did. Matt, what about you? Um, there were a lot of bands in Bristol that I thought were going to be fantastic. The Sears were one. Never, oh, I never always did. thought the Sears were going to be enormous. The Sears yeah. were huge. <laughs> yeah. I know I was from Bristol. I thought they were yeah. going to be huge yeah. as well. And the Harpoons as well, yeah. who I thought were going to be good, but no. They blue blue they got either, Typical Bristolians all got very stoned and can be able yeah. to make proper records or go on tour, you know. So yeah, it's oh. a, it's amazing though how many of the how many of the groups that pop up in this thread, are sort of jangly classic guitar groups. It's called that angel. Jellyfish, Teenage Fan Jellyfish Club. Jellyfish were a great band. But okay, but oh my teenage God, the drummer you... used to stand up to play drums. <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was pretty good, and he sang as well. The and records, the Mutton Birds, all these kind of groups. Quite a good group, people like me, they also made great records. They're going to be huge, and and here's the fact: we all ought to learn. None of them are ever, ever. Have you ever known any of those groups? Any of those kind of jangly sound a bit like the Birds. Sound a bit like Big Star. Have you known any of them ever break through? But bands like Teenage Fan Club reached a certain level of critical and kind of... Um, they did well. And they get like that type of thing acclaim. And they just they, they live a comfortable life. I suppose so. Band but they're never huge. It wasn't Bandwagon-esque, the album of the year, famously over um, Nevermind. Well, that still would be in my mind. Album of the year in what? Well, I can't remember what I did. In the cash tunes. No, no, it's like the NME or something. Well, yeah, of course. That's an album of the year. But isn't there something about that? They're just slightly too tasteful. You know, if you've got anybody in a group who's too much of a kind of student of popular music, there is a limit to how far they will go. Anybody who puts Brian Wilson down as one of his... Yes. (laughs) There's just going to be some kind of ceiling on it. You know, whereas they haven't quite got the kind of... the the energy, energy and vulgarity... Of the people who make it. it Isn't it nowadays that it's that no women would buy them and only women buy records now? So there would be no point in having one of these. That's possible. No women, women, women buy records? Well, I, I, only big well, hits are all Only big hits are all women. I've discovered that if I was an A&R man, which I'm very glad I'm not, the only person whose opinion I trust is my mother, who is who, who buys records because she sees them being advertised on the telly and because she really likes them. And the records that are being made now are great for her. She really likes them. And she yep. she is extremely happy with the way the music industry is now. Yep. And the, the, the kind of slightly folksy singer-songwritery people who are always on TV adverts, she loves it. And it's, you know, they, they, she's very, very well served by the music industry. And she buys records. She doesn't go and download them off Fit if, if, you, if you look at it, if you look at all, and they don't have so many anymore, but if you look at anything that stays at number one for ages, it's bought by women. Yeah. Tell me, Brian Adams was bought by women. Dave, I can hardly believe it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sixteen weeks. I thought that was things, rugby things, players. Things that but... stay at number one for months. They tend to be ballads. Yeah, they tend to have a kind of message that people kind of clutch to their bosom that applies to their life, and they tend to be bought by women. But now it's the album. You know, it's these album. When I look at the album charts now, I've got no idea who any of these people are, and they're all people who are American and they advertise on telly. I see TV adverts for these records I've never heard of. Yeah. Like, and what sort of people? You know, people like Ray Lamontagne. Is he called Ray Lamontagne? Yeah, Ray Lamontagne. People like that. Yeah. No idea who he is. He's on the telly. I'm sure my mum's bought his record. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and I think there's this entire, you know, they're doing very well with that stuff. No, that's a, it's a, it's not buying jangly uh, indie pop. They're certainly not doing that. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So if you're listening to this on the Tuesday, it's the birthday of... You know, there aren't many rock stars who could claim to be 80 years old, okay? In fact, there are two. Is it Jet Black of the Strange? <laughs> I was trying to guess. I'm trying to guess who it might be. It's not Charlie Watts, is it? <laughs> Chuck Charlie Jeff. Harper of the UK subs. <laughs> We've done this one. Oh, we sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> we probably have. Jerry Halliwell. Jerry Halliwell. Um, <laughs> um, Rockstar. <laughs> Chuck Berry passed his 80th some while ago. Right. Today, if you're listening on Tuesday, happy birthday, Fats Domino. Fats. Oh. 80 years he's old. Still above ground and vertical. He really, well, he's that amazing thing about Fats. Yeah. Fats Domino, in 1980, he decided, he announced that he was no longer going to leave New Orleans. Yeah. Because he didn't <laughs> like the food. Yeah. Which is a fantastic reason. So even when he got invited to play at the White House, he said, no, I'm not going. You know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, no, I'm not going. Uh, and so stayed there. And then when Katrina came along, you know, he was assumed dead, wasn't he? He, he was, was actually, right. He was assumed dead for days. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know... Well, they hold up in the, late, in the local kind of boot out No, apparently was he, yeah. he was with his, with his grandson or something like that, you know. And, and he survived. He, he's not enjoying the best of health, obviously. Uh, which is a pretty traumatic thing to happen to anybody, let alone when you're nearly 80 years old. But that's dominant. 80 years old is pretty good. Respect the man. Absolutely. It's terrific. The word. So it's yeah. it's traditional that we finish with uh, a hoary old rock anecdote, and this one sort of relates, sort of relates to the conversation we've had, we had earlier about you know the history of putting together records and how records are put together nowadays, which personally fascinates me. No great punchline, but I think it tells you a lot about the way things are done nowadays. That go back way way back to the early seventies. There used to be a group that Mark, not even Mark's old enough to remember. I just about remember called Bodast, okay? Three-piece, you know, foot soldiers, you know, <laughs> regulars of the Watford Gap, you know, and their, their lead guitarist was Steve Howe, subsequently was a member of Yes. Oh, right. And then the other two... Yeah, I genuinely haven't heard of them. Have you heard of them? No. Bodast. Bodast. Well, they're so Anyway, the back group. legs of the pantomime donkey that was Bodast yeah. were Dave Curtis and Clive Muldoon, right? Two guys who got... So Steve Howe gets the call from Yes, he thinks, great, I'll go after fame and fortune, leaves the two guys. So the long, Bodast. <laughs> so long, suckers. I'm out of here. Uh, Bodast realise that there's no future in being called Bodast, so they decide to adopt the rather snappier Curtis Muldoon. And, and as Curtis Muldoon, they make a record for the least celebrated ro record label in the history of popular music, which is Pi's progressive oh. uh, offshoot, Dawn. Okay. You knew, you, knew, you knew your career was finished if you were on <laughs> Dawn. You know. nobody, nobody came out of Dawn alive. You know. Anyway, they, they put out this record, Curtis Muldoon, and, uh, and then they you know, shipped five copies, returned ten. ten you know. yeah. uh, and uh, and they, they gave up in disgust and went their separate ways. And um, sadly, a few years later, Dave Curtis, one of them, died. Not prematurely. I think drug-related. Uh, and um, Clive Muldoon kind of kept going. Meanwhile, Dave Curtis had a niece, okay, who you know grew up with an interest in music and was told that you know her uncle well, used to be oh your uncle used yeah. to be in a pop group. Here's his record, right? And she there was a track on this called Seferin, right, which she quite liked, quite catchy. And uh, so she had a tape, made a tape of it, and used to take it around with her. Subsequently, when she grew up. 
she joined, joined some kind of dance outfit called Baby Fox. Do you know them, Tom? Okay, uh, well, yeah, we kind of, you know, they, they, they weren't big, but, you know, they, they were no. Um, and uh, when she, later on, she made a solo record produced by William Orbit. And she took along this little tape. And uh, she said, I've always liked this tune. And played him this, this tune. And the chorus of Sephirin was, I feel like I've just been born. Okay? And William Orbit thinks, that's catchy. I like that. And of course, nowadays, you know, they, they slowly assemble records, don't they? they? They put them on the hard drive, yeah. take them around, you know, fix this bit up with that bit. And uh, so William Orbit's next project is producing the Madonna album. And so he plays this bit to Madonna. She goes, I like, I like that. that. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you look at the credits for Ray of Lights by Madonna, which is a massive worldwide hit, it is, funnily enough, Madonna, Madonna first, yeah. Orbit, Nice third, Curtis fourth, Muldoon fifth. But basically, you know, whatever, 30 years after, I mean, not, not quite, yeah, probably nearly 30 years. After the guy died, you know, some, you know, large man from the PRS or whatever turn up at his widow's front door, oh, bearing an enormous check. A great wheelbarrow full of cash. Yes. You know, <laughs> I so, love stories like that. But it, With it, a and I think, yeah, I think you're going to get more and more of that in the future because bits of records get, you know, get preserved, don't they? Yeah. Taken around. But they're probably in. members of, you know, Rare Bird or something listening to this podcast now, Dave, thinking, do you know what? I shouldn't worry so much about my minimum interest mortgage. You know, I might just have a lucky little windfall. It's a pension. <laughs> exactly. Long yeah. after you've gone, you know, yeah. your, your descendants may yet make money. Yeah, trousers are a huge amount of cash. So, you know, look on the bright side, the members of Budgie. Budgie, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, man. The, the Shelley dynasty. Chili Billy and the Red Hot Peppers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Pete Brown's Pib Lotco. They'll be, all be absolutely thrilled. Baby They'll be in Clover. <laughs> Let's just sit here and mention the names of lots of really terrible old prog rock bands, shall we? <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 